Hi, love. I want to kick off today by telling you very first about a brand new offering that I am coming out with soon for anyone who is looking to make more income during this challenging time of coronavirus and the recession here in the U.S. and that many countries are and will be in. You are truly hearing about it first right here on the podcast. I have not announced any details, but today's conversation is about work, dreaming, passion projects, life purpose, and a lot of us are wrestling with that right now. So I wanted to let you know that I have some more actionable help coming as well, whether it is that maybe you have lost your job or your brick and mortar business has come to a standstill or you're selling less of your services or offerings. Maybe you're nervous about job security or you've realized you aren't as fulfilled by your current work because of recent changes in your personal life and workflow. I've heard that from some of you. Maybe you're struggling to dream, think big, plan ahead, really figure out what it is that lights you up. Um, I know that the next few months or even the rest of the year can feel so uncertain for so many of us right now. So in the short term, I want to help. And if you will swipe up, I've got a simple page where you can opt in to hear the moment that I have something more concrete to help. And in the longer term, I thought today's episode would be perfect. I recorded this over Christmas and it is with my dad, which one, I think we are all yearning for sweetness, warmth, family, and connection these days. But two, my dad is pretty impressive. (laughs) He is very like entrepreneurial minded before his time, kind of accidental genius, thinks outside the box. So he shared stories with me that I'd never heard before and ones that I had, but listening in this new light, I realized really specific actions, inspirations, lessons, and takeaways for you and I both. So listen in for how to find your own secret sauce and accidental genius in taking risks, creating a life and work you love, playing to your strengths, standing out from the competition, and succeeding where you have no business or background to, and more. You're welcome. What was that? You're welcome. With Hillary Rushford. Say it again. You're welcome. In advance. So, Daddy, let's start off by listing for me all of the jobs you have had, let's say, just in the last 10 years. What would you say your jobs have been? Well, everything revolves around Pepperdine University. I've worked there 40 years. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, about seven or eight years ago, I left the longest job I've had. So now it's I'm in my retirement years, but I haven't retired. <laughs> you started all over again. <laughs> so um, I turned over <clears throat> the direction of the annual Bible lectures in 2012. So and, you hosted well, lectures was a <clears throat> annual event for about 5,000 people. So you ran that event. When I took over, it was about 600 people oh, okay. uh, at the at the biggest gathering, mm-hmm. 400 to 600. When I left that job, it was between four and 5,000 people who came to the event. So that was a very busy 30 years. And then you did other events throughout the year. You have smaller lecture programs in addition that you bring yes. guests into. Yeah. But your 
then your main job, well, your your second job in all that time, you're a professor. Yes, when I came, they brought me as uh, minister of the university church, and I did that for three years. I really enjoyed that. I had just finished my PhD at the University of California at Santa Barbara, and uh, that was a good three years. But then we had the opportunity to move to Germany and be the faculty family. And someone couldn't come in the summer, and they contacted us to say, will you stay on? So we ended up staying 12 months, and we traveled in 22 countries. And, um, and of course, I lost my job. I mean, I was gone 12 months, so <laughs> somebody else came in as minister of the university church, which was fine. I, just, I never thought about that part of it. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I did three years, and that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. It was, you know, it's a student church, and uh, I really had fun being the minister of a university church. But while I was in Heidelberg, the president called me um, and said he had another job for me. So I came back to something else. Which was teaching? No, it was being the director of church relations. Okay. I don't know where this idea first came into my mind, but at some point in my life, I became convinced that between the time you turn 39 and the time you turn 41, it's in that window of, of life that you will know what the main thing you're going to do in your life. And I believed that. I had a list of people like Columbus discovering America. I mean, on and on. The people that did the most important thing they ended up doing in their life, and it was between 39 and 41. So on my 39th birthday, we were at a town in Switzerland, and um, and I was thinking, I'm, I'm going to know fairly soon in the next two years what I was really called to do. And we came back home to our home in Heidelberg, Morehouse, which slept for 54 students. That was a big palatial estate. Your tiny little German home. And uh, right next to the famous Heidelberg Castle. And the phone call came from Dr. White, the president of Pepperdine University, on that phone that I think is still there in the kitchen of the faculty flat in Heidelberg. I called you from that phone to tell you that I was going to Paris by myself for the weekend. And you oh, said, and you absolutely quite... are not. <laughs> I was upset by that. I remember that. Uh, he called and said, the person who has been the director of church relations is moving and I know that you've expressed interest in that. Uh, church relations was a fairly eclectic job, but the big thing that interested me was directing the annual week of Bible lectures. And he called me about the third week in December. And, uh, and I said, you know how much I want to do this, but Lori and I need to talk about it and pray about it. And so when he called back, or I called him transatlantic call, I said, the answer is yes, I do want to do this, but I need to say some things. <laughs> One is, if you're content with the way the program is now, I don't think I'm your man. Hmm. It's a good program. It brings 400 to 600 people, but that's not my vision for what it could be. And uh, secondly, I'm not one for mailing out flyers and mailing out programs and saying you ought to come to this event. You'll, you will have to give me some travel money. 
I'm best face-to-face. I need to go speak to churches in Northern California, Portland, Seattle, Albuquerque, Phoenix, and they've got to see the expression on my face, and I can sell them on why they ought to come to Malibu, California at the end of April or beginning of May and be a part of this four-day event and why it will change their life and they need to come. I can't do that with a printed piece of paper. I've got to go. So Dr. White knew that as he structured the job, he would have to give me some travel money. And he and he did. And that I to me that was the number one reason it grew and that it was successful. Interesting. How, how did you know that how did you know you were so good as an in-person salesperson? You know, a lot of fellow entrepreneurs hearing this, how did you know that you were good at sales and marketing, in essence, and that you were good in person versus written? Some people would say, oh, it's my copywriting skills. I can write great copy or it's my design skills. I can make a beautiful brochure that makes everyone want to come. I think it goes back to the 11th grade when I wasn't happy with my really big 3,400 student high school in Detroit, Michigan, even though I was on the varsity basketball team. That was about the only thing I liked. And my parents agreed that I could go away to a private boarding school in Canada, a Christian high school. It was about five hours away. But anyway, we had chapel every day at this Christian high school. And I was fascinated that students led a lot of this. You know, school started like in early September. And I went to the principal and said, how do you get to be on chapel? And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I would like to give one of the talks. And he said, you want to be a speaker in chapel? And I said, yeah, I think so. Hmm. So my day was October 8. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, and I got up and I gave a speech. Um, I'm sure it was awful. I mean... There's no recording of it, and I don't have any notes from it. But I do remember this. When I sat down, I knew that my life had changed. And when I sat there, I, th- I remember thinking, I've got to do this again, and I can do better. And I did do it again and again and again. And um, at some point in those three years, especially the second and third year, then I began speaking for churches in the area. I mean, I had no <clears throat> car, but I would walk out to the front of our campus, get on a bus, and go to Hamilton, Ontario. And a man named Fisher, Mr. Fisher, would meet me at the bus stop, and I would go over and preach for that church that morning. And then I would get on the bus and come back home. I was 17 years old. And um, I loved that. One, A member of the board of directors of this little school lived in Toronto. This man took me to Toronto where I was to preach Sunday morning and Sunday night for a church on Strathmore Boulevard. I still remember it. And I studied and studied and studied. I didn't get to see Toronto. They kept saying, the the family that was hosting me, do you want to go for a drive? And I said, well, I, I, don't, I better not. I'm not ready. <sighs> That kind of public speaking uh, 
that really shaped my life so that I have confidence one-on-one, mm. more so than writing somebody a letter or a note. If, I, if they can see my passion for an idea or concept, um, and, that's, and Dr. White bought into that and gave me enough money that I could travel. Mm. And uh, Gosh, so, there's so much in that that I think is interesting takeaways for people. I think, one, the fact that you you saw something that you thought you wanted to do in speaking that you didn't have any experience in, you didn't think you would be very good at, but you were willing to do it the first time. You had to do it for a long time. You're talking about being 16 and then this opportunity coming around between 39 and 41. Right. Like, <clears throat> these days we think, we see everyone being so good at things on the internet and think, well, I want to be there a year from now. And you're saying, well, I worked for 25 years to build up the skill set yeah. of speaking. I think I can get people excited about this if I see them face to face. There also is something in, you know, for people listening who haven't met you or seen you speak, like there is just something very dynamic about you. I mean, you can just get people eating out of the palm of your hand. People are just <laughs> obsessed with you when they, you know, hear you speak. And that's a je ne sais quoi that not everyone has, that there is something in really knowing, you know, I can get people passionate about something. And then those little elements of, am I going to go on the angle of this is going to revolutionize your church? You're going to come back so energized. Like, how can I really sell people on what's in it for them? I'm also fascinated by how how you how you lead and also how you get other people to buy into your ideas. So one of the things that really stands out to me over the years is you wanted to see more women in positions of leadership in the church, more women speaking. Mm -hmm. And that was a fairly progressive issue that you always tried to be kind of one or two steps ahead. But then simultaneously, I remember times of you coming home where there was going to be some protest that was happening about, you know, how dare we not yet have a female, you know, keynote speaker there and we're going to pass out buttons in the parking lot and we're going to, you know, really be activists for this cause. And seeing you stand in the in-between of, I respect the people that are more conservative and the slow pace of bringing them along. I also hear the activists and we're headed in that direction. But if if we're strongly in one camp or the other, we aren't going to make progress. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious where that mindset came from or where that wisdom came from to know how can I speak to both of these sides and how can I lead lead presidents because a lot of times you were having to kind of go to bat to to people above you you were having to go to the president and either say I want to push you a little more in this category or I want to slow you down a little bit in this category because which was usually and I can't think of another example I think it usually was about the role of women well I think uh, way back I've been sort of a middle-of-the-road centrist kind of person I remember 
there were four of us every year the day after Christmas, we would go to Grand Rapids, Michigan to buy books because they were 50% off. And and I would save up like $400 through the year wow. and then go buy whatever I could get for 50% off. And it was at one of those gatherings that um, I was in this aisle, but on the next aisle was Dr. Joseph Jones and and a man um, that, that was a preacher in the area. And the man pulled a book off the shelf. They were talking and I could hear them and they knew I could hear them. And I was in this aisle and the preacher said to Dr. Jones, here's an interesting book, Life in the Middle of the Road by Jerry Rushford. <laughs> and we all laughed <laughs> because they were both a little left of center and and they were teasing me that I always am trying to not leave somebody behind, whether it's right or left. So when Dr. White said I could be the director of church relations, which meant director of the Bible lectures, along with other things, we came back from Heidelberg, Germany, and he called me into his office and he said, okay, let's talk about the Bible lectures. Your first year is the 40th. So, you know, this event's been going 39 years. It was started by George Pepperdine himself. Huh. So how are you going to position this? What are you going to do with this? And I was not surprised by the question because I'd been thinking about it. I mean, we're way out here on the Pacific Ocean. We're in Malibu. But this is a conservative university, and the faith fellowship that we're related to is pretty conservative. So when he said that day, how are you going to position this? I said to him, I plan to position this program just responsibly, and I think that was the key word, mm -hmm. responsibly a little left of center. And I think he came close to falling off his chair. <laughs> he said, uh, what? Say that again. I said, I want to position this a little left of center. And he said, why? We're right of center. And I said, well, it's for that reason. People come out to California expecting us to be left of center. Mm -hmm. So let's not totally disappoint them. They're coming out here to the West. And I think the purpose of this event is to make people stretch. Or as one guy said to me one time, you really make us stretch our thinker. <laughs> I think that old boy had it right. I was, I, I, yeah, I want to stretch your thinker. I want you to think outside the box. Uh, the first two years of my program, boy, it ended pretty quick. There were people complaining to me that I had women teachers there and men were flooding into their class to listen to them. <laughs> And I said, I'm sorry, you want me to try to stop that? <laughs> I said, I don't think they're usurping anybody's authority. If a man wants to go and hear her, he's got the right to go and hear her. But they were wanting me to stand at the door and say, no, you can't be taught by a woman. That ended within two years, I think. Interesting. Um, once you're successful, and I was successful in my third year, then you really can do the things that are your personality. I love to honor people. And our universities did that a little bit, but not as enough to my satisfaction. So I got to where I was honoring about 15 a year. I, I handed out plaques to 287. And when they did that 
magazine at the end of my career summing that up you know they're all listed in the back in the year I honored them but the other thing that I did that was so me as you know uh, I'm not a morning person uh, and I have trouble getting tired at night I'm I do my best thinking late at night so I created after the evening lecture all these programs at nine o'clock you know, the, the final prayer would be about 10 after 8 or something after the president gets up and thanks everybody for coming. We have a closing prayer. People visit for a while. I wanted everybody to go to the cafeteria for pie and coffee, and I became famous or infamous for that. People would come to Pepperdine for the pie and coffee. You would go in there at night between 8.30 and 11, and there would be 800 people in the cafeteria having pie and coffee and visiting with people they hadn't seen in five years or 10 years. Or I mean, it was, it was a family reunion for our church fellowship. And But there were also these, I would have at least five classes at 9 o'clock to extend the lectureship. When they ended at 10, there was a new influx of people coming into the cafeteria for pie and coffee, running over there because they didn't want the pie to run out. And, and we would go for another hour to 11. And uh, so honoring people, ending each day with, with uh, pie and coffee. But as I said once when I was interviewed, I'm wanting everybody I bring here to feel ownership of this program. And that goes from Ph.D. scholar in New England to these blue-collar workers that come, and, and white and black and Hispanic and European. And I, I wanted to bring conservatives and liberals and everybody together, and I wanted them all to feel like, this is my program. Mm. So that it wasn't a right-wing program or a left-wing program. It was the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. And there's going to be something there that you love, and there's going to be something there that challenges you every year. I had one old preacher who would criticize me every year. I loved him. <laughs> and, uh, and he was one of the first people I met when I moved to California. And, um, and we were good friends, but every year he would tell me where I was lacking. As the program got bigger and bigger and more successful and more successful, he would find out, he would find those little things that were irritating him. And then finally, about five years before the end, I did 30 years, he came to me and said, this is the best lecture program <laughs> I have ever been to. I have no complaints. And I said, Bob, who do you think moved? <laughs> One of us has moved here. <laughs> and uh, he laughed and said, well, I guess it's me. Interesting. He had grown. He was a very right-wing conservative person. But he had come to see what I was trying to achieve, and he and he had the self confidence to come to me and say this this was the best one you've ever done, and it wasn't any different from what I'd been doing. But he had grown to that point. I started by saying, let's list out the jobs you've had in the last ten years, and we we got to like two of them. But you've so you've been a, a an event director in essence, yeah. through this large conference and the smaller ones. Within, you also had been a, a minister. That was longer than 10 years mm -hmm. ago in some ways, but we'll throw that in. You, within that church relations position, you also put out a quarterly magazine. You have written books. You were a professor at the university and not just 
a professor of one thing. Some people would build their whole career just on one thing. But you taught public speaking, religion, and literature. Church history. Be. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you, like, literature, you taught on Shakespeare and things like that. And you also speak frequently all over the U.S. and all over the world. You lead an annual church history and hymns tour throughout England. And now you had the idea for a historical society and basically created a whole new a whole new job for yourself as your quote unquote retirement. So I think I'm up to 10 things, all of which are things that that some people would spend their whole life doing. You know, you are a professional tour guide or you you just teach on English literature. Uh, you left out college basketball coach. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if we really go back, <laughs> we've got college basketball I only coach. did that two years. <laughs> but out, what I'm fascinated by is that, as I said, as I've gotten, as I've gotten older, I've realized how similar we are. And it was when I was in my 20s and I had this, you know, I was doing musical theater and I knew there was a next step. I'd always thought I would be a professor like you were. I shouldn't say always, but for some time I had thought I will eventually go back and be a theater professor. And that was, you know, you had been a professor. I loved um, the liberal arts and I had this theater experience. And then I started to realize I didn't think that that was ultimately what I wanted to do, but I, I didn't know what else it was. And when I sort of had this aha on February 1, 2011 of think I want to be something called a creative entrepreneur. And that's not a tech guy in Silicon Valley with a dot com. I think there are girls like me that are just running businesses. And I think I could do that. And what assimilated for me that day was that everyone that I was drawn to and had looked up to, I said, it's like they had a peacock feather of a tail feather of things that they did. I realized the reality shows that I liked at the time were a personal stylist who, you know, then also had a book and did this and did that and and was doing all of these manner of things. And I realized that you had had all of these different careers that you had done, whereas most people traditionally have one one feather. They are a doctor. They are a kindergarten teacher. They are a lawyer. And people spend 50 years very happily and successfully doing one thing. It's actually not the norm to be a multi-hyphenate, multi-passionate. And I, I'm curious if there's a time when you realized that, did you did you consciously realize this isn't the normal career path that I'm trying to create and I'm different than most people? That I, were you aware? I want more diversity in my life. I want more stimulus in all these different ways. I wouldn't be happy just exclusively being a full-time pastor or a full-time professor? I think it was gradual. I don't think it was overnight. I would see all these ads in the church newspapers and magazines of all these uh, people leading tours to the Holy Land. I didn't want to do that. I did go on a tour to the Holy Land. Um, but I would read all these, and I would think, I, I think I could be a good tour leader but not to the Holy Land. What would be mine? Well, my love is England, and so I'm an Anglophile. 
But in my senior year in college, I, be, I, I fell in love with um, all the stories behind hymns and English hymns, and many of them written from England. So I got the idea of putting together a tour where we would do a lot of singing, do a lot of research on hymns, but we would go to London, we would see a play, uh, we would go to this cathedral, and we would go to Stratford, and we would talk about Shakespeare. So I developed a tour called um, A Literary and Hymn, H-Y-M-N, A Literary and Hymn Pilgrimage to England, Wales, and Scotland. And I've led 19 of those now. I take 38 people. Um, that's because I make 39 and the coach driver's 40, and a lot of the hotels have a special room with five round tables where you can get eight people. <laughs> and uh, I learned that gradually. The, the other thing that I haven't mentioned in all of the questions when you were saying, how do you do this, how do you do that, is from a very early stage, it wasn't just public speaking. It was my love of stories. And so it's that combination. And people say to me... Um, you know, you must have had a great speech teacher, and I really didn't have speech teachers. The first time I ever had a speech class was Homiletics One, when I was in graduate school, which is the preparation and delivery of sermons. But I must have been 23 in that class, and I started preaching at 16. So wow. I had seven years of developing my style, which is all narrative. I'm a storyteller. And it was a little too late for me to take that class. <laughs> But in the, in the Christian high school in Canada, we had a speech contest in every year. And I don't quite remember that first year, 11th grade. But in the 12th grade, I won over a, a good friend of mine, a girl named Marilyn, who should have won. And she said afterward, how did you beat me? How, how? And I said, Marilyn, you're, right now you're a better speaker than I am. And you worked so hard, and you know the craft of speech making. But the story you told wasn't interesting. I, on the other hand, got fascinated with the six people who went over Niagara Falls in a barrel on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> and three of them lived, and three of them died. And three of them were men, and three of them were women. I mean, I, the whole story, I thought, I had read this in a book. So I took that and I created a story that had everybody in the auditorium in the palm of my hand, and I won the contest. Although I think Marilyn had all the basics down mm. that I didn't have down yet, but I had them hanging on this woman going over the, in a barrel. Stories, I guess, go back to my mother. She would tell me stories in the evening. And what I remember is she would have a voice for each of the characters. I know that. So as she would read me, you know, a Robin Hood story or, you know, some nursery rhyme, she would tell the, have the different voices. And when I, I would beg to stay up for the evening newspaper in Detroit, Michigan, we had the Detroit Free Press that came in the evening. Every other paper comes in the morning. This is our night newspaper. Hmm. And I... And I'm a night person, and I would beg my mom to let me stay up till the paper came. And then she would read me the comics. <laughs> and she would read me all the different voices. Then I could go to bed, you know. And Never heard that. So that was probably the beginning of stories. 
when I travel now, people will say, I remember the story you told about. Mm-hmm. Or when I wrote the book on the Oregon Trail and I gave speeches on that, you know, I, uh, my publishing company said, uh, we're doing this for you, a big clunky 600-page hardback, but we're only going to do 1,000 copies, and that'll last us, you know, for, for the next millennium. And that sold out in less than a year because I spoke on that topic everywhere, and then mm-hmm. I got the books for $20 when they were selling for 35 in the stores, and people would come up, and they wanted me to sign the book and get it for $20. But finally, and I was selling a lot of books, but one woman came up to me, and I've never forgotten. This was in Oregon somewhere. And she said, okay, I'm going to buy the book. <laughs> I'm going to buy the book. And, it, and this has been a great lecture tonight. I'm glad I came. Lovely evening. <laughs> but I'll go ahead and be honest. Um, I, I really don't want the book. I want you to read the book to me. Yeah. So why don't you make a book on tape? Have you heard of audiobooks? And I said, yeah, my whole life revolves around audiobooks. I get in my car and I push the button and start and pick up my story. I just go through audiobooks, you know, just constant. I So why did you never make one for I your book? No. I, I don't know. <laughs> I I I thought it was a good idea I should get in a mm-hmm. studio and read these stories in this book on the Oregon Trail the way I do it. And and it probably would have been successful. I think the answer is just too many balls in the air, yep. too much going. As soon as you said, I don't know, I thought, <laughs> oh, every entrepreneur has a list of things that someone would say or they would say to themselves, why haven't I done this yet? And there was just something else. You know, you're never, yeah. as a creative, you're never short on ideas. So you just have to pick some of them to implement. But what I love that you said about realizing you never had a teacher again i think an interesting parallel that i see i mean i say that often about theater like i had a comical high school experience in terms of lack of leadership in <laughs> the theater like my i was telling jeremy these stories the other night that our our sophomore year the theater teacher who was lovely got fired because he wouldn't just go complete his credentials to actually become a, a teacher. I don't I don't know. He just wasn't a self-starter. So he finally had he'd been given a year probation or something. So he had to be fired. Then we got Mr. Harris, our junior year, who sat down with me and my best friend who were kind of leading the theater department, I, I guess, energetically or something, sat down with us and told us that he wanted to do a production of West Side Story in the gym. We didn't have a theater, so everything was performed in the gym. So wisely, he was trying to lean into that and say, well, we're already making a theater in the gym. Why don't we just use make it the actual gym? And he said, and the basketball team will be having a game throughout the show. And we, and I said, so uh, Chris and I looked at each other and we said, so you're you're wanting the basketball team to come to the theater rehearsals and we're going to we're going to choreograph their game like I I don't think that the coach is gonna really go for that like that doesn't really seem like a logical he said oh okay all right well well then we'll do music man and instead of the bleachers we'll bring in dirt and we'll just we'll make like a picnic scene all the way he said you're you're gonna bring in dirt I 
I don't know that the principle is really going to go with bringing in mounds of dirt. I don't really know that people are going to want to sit on dirt. So we're having to talk him off the ledge of these. These are not great ideas. So he lasted a year. And then we got Miss Lee, a classical pianist who spoke very little English, who cast 42nd Street. And I was, you know, I went to a small high school. I was the dancer and my friend Denise was the singer. I mean, she did every every national anthem and talent show. I would dance and she would sing. And when the cast list came out, I was in the role that had eight solos and she was in the role that was the best tap dancer. And other people's parents called to ask if there had been a typo on the <laughs> cast list. They thought, oh, I think I think Hillary and Denise got swapped because that wouldn't make sense. So Denise and I went to speak to her and she said, um, you know, oh, well, I thought and I, I don't want to be offensive and do an Asian accent, but she's this very meek woman. And she's like, oh, well, you know, Den- Denise came in and and she she was very timid. She said, oh, my, my voice, my voice today is not so good. And I thought, ah, oh, Peggy Sawyer and Hillary. Hillary came in and she was very confident in her audition. And I thought, Dorothy Brooke. <laughs> and it was based not at all on my singing ability or having seen Denise dance. So halfway through, we we swapped roles. Denise came to me one day with her tap shoes and said, I, I would like to give you this role. <laughs> Clearly, I'm not going to be able to pick up the same. So we said, could we switch roles? And she said, yes. And then we basically went on to to direct the show. I choreographed the show. And when she went to print the bulletin, the program she was going to put that Denise and I had co-directed it. And again, we had the wisdom to say, I don't think other people's parents are going to be thrilled that we directed, choreographed and starred in this show without any, you know, why don't you say that we assistant directed it? So I look back and see that as you were saying about speaking, I did not have anyone telling me how to do this. Now, I had a great tap teacher, but even there, I quit tap when I got to high school. And then it was another eight years before I got a Broadway show, having not taken tap class in eight years. Um, But I see within that, I think some people need that exact leadership to study under. But something I say often to my entrepreneur students, especially within the mastermind that I host, where I feel like I can be a little more sassy and a little more honest with them, is you don't need that person to learn from. Like you, you can have that talent or natural instinct or, you know, gut ideas within you. And I think that there are a lot of people that are waiting to say, well, I I never had a good speech teacher, so I wouldn't be able to do that. Well, I I didn't have a great theater teacher. Um, Well, I need someone to explain, you know, to to explain Facebook ads to me as opposed to, well, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to figure it out. And like you said, your first speech probably wasn't very good. But I think something that has always stood out to me that I think is one of the reasons I was successful that you mentioned in why you beat Marilyn in that competition (laughs) is really acute self-awareness. Like I knew within musical theater that I was incredibly blessed to do the Radio Radio City Rockettes multiple years and have done this Broadway tour and to play leading roles in regional theater. I knew I was more successful than the average person in America who wants to do this. But I also was very aware in auditions that I wasn't exceptional. Like there was, you know, I was good as a singer. I was I was great at certain genres. I was exceptional as a tap dancer. And that's where most of my success came from. 
but I could look around the room and I always felt like there was a thing that some other girls had. There was some je ne sais quoi that just made them pop or made them sharper. And I knew I had it in a certain area in the 1930s era. I had a vibe about me, but that was my and that's why I got that Broadway tour. And if a million other shows had been happening that summer, my entire life would have been different. I don't think I ever would have moved to New York. I don't know that I would have met my husband. Like it was the right show. And I had that self-awareness that I think is very rare because I think a lot of people either have a somewhat inflated sense of self and are trying to do things that they aren't really gifted in. Or they are just too insecure and they're focusing on, well, I don't have this, this and that. And therefore, they're not even trying. But what I hear in your story and see in mine is an awareness of, well, this is is my my secret sauce. This is my magic. And if I just lean into that, it's okay that I don't have the exact script that Marilyn has. It's okay that I'm not at that level in this, or that's an area for me to grow in, I'm just really going to lean into storytelling as my thing. And I'm going to win off of that. Friend, I so hope you feel inspired after that conversation. My dad is in his 70s and is still creating new things, writing books, starting a new career. So I hope this reminds us that we are never too old to find new joy in our vocation, that we can be lifelong learners and evolving. You know, in his story, he started speaking at 16 and got his dream job at 39 related to that. And we shouldn't focus on those numbers. You could be 47 listening to this and get your dream job from zero to 100 in one year. So that's not saying that it's going to take us 20 years to get someplace. But I think so often in the internet, we see that things look so fast and easy and overnight. And I really am challenging myself at all times to remember that Whatever it is we are growing in, whatever skill set, we are here to grow for life and we are not trying to get to some place within the next year or by our 30th birthday or by our 50th birthday. This is a lifelong of building up our skills and always going on to new things. And remember, you can find evidence of whatever you want to prove to be true. So my dad had an idea that ages 39 to 41 is when people found their life's purpose. And he says he built up a whole list of people. That's when Christopher Columbus discovered America. And he had been gathering evidence in his life to prove this statement true. And then he proved it true in his own life. But you don't have to take that sentence if that does not feel true to you. You can look at, here are all the people that started a new new career after the age of 60. Here are all the people that uh, had incredible success before the age of 25. Here's all the people that did this and were never married and had children. Here's all the people that did this while they had four young kids at home. Remember that we can find evidence of whatever it is we want to be true for us. So make sure that you don't take a truth from someone else's story that is not ultimately what you want to be true and therefore start finding evidence for why this won't work for you, why this doesn't apply to you, why you're too late, why you are you know, too, too much or too little fill in the blank. And the final thing I want to say is that A few of my dad's secret sauce things that he shared were honoring people. He just likes to point out other people and say, you know what? You're doing an amazing job. 
And I think we should just all stand over here and celebrate you. I would imagine there's a lot of people here listening. That's something you love. That's something you're good at. And yet you would not think, you know what? I could probably make money doing someday. It's just loving other people, just celebrating other people. But that was one of the things he mentioned, staying up late. There's so much emphasis around early risers. And we have, we've talked here back in the episode on my morning routine about how there's so much emphasis and culture of the, the, the early risers are the secret of success these days. He's like, no, my thing really was, uh, I like to stay up late. So I just leaned into that. And it became one of the things that made my program, my product, my business different than everybody else's. Also liking dessert. <laughs> I mean, guys, the fact that he talked about this pie and coffee thing was one of the, the memorable, unique parts of this event compared to the events people would go to the rest of the year. Guys, my dad just really likes dessert. <laughs> So you're like, no, that's not a thing that makes me unique. Yes, it is. In the same way that I like Taylor Swift and I start my webinars off with a Taylor Swift dance party. And I didn't do that because I saw some class on the internet that told me that that's what I should do. Any more than somebody said to my dad that this is what he should do. He just genuinely liked desserts. And being into music, even though he can't sing, that tour that he talked about that he leads that is on Christian hymns, he is a horrible singer. (laughs) He would not be offended for me to say that. And yet he just likes the story behind music. Most people who love the story behind music would say, well, yes, but I'm not a musician. So I'm not going to succeed in a musical field. I'm not going to be competitive enough in that area. But I really want you to see that there are so many people that that are waiting for this huge, unique thing that you are going to start to make money on, to be an entrepreneur, to make a contribution. And And yet really just you being you is more than enough. It's the little things that light you up. It's the small things that delight you and are part of your personality that you don't find that unique because they've just always been who you are. And truly that is enough. And I hope that you will lean into that just a little bit more to bless the people around you this season and to come. Wait. One more thing. Don't miss this. Before you go, love. P.S. Something I'm loving lately is the West Wing. You may know that I have already been an abashed lifelong fan. I mean, not lifelong, but you know, since since its days when it was actually airing on television of the critically acclaimed series, The West Wing. And I just want to make a plug that it is, in my personal humble opinion, the perfect viewing for right now because it is that blend between it's something serious but uplifting. It isn't just completely frivolous where it sort of feels like, oh, how could I just even be sucked into something so like so fluffy when there's heavy things happening in the world, but I also don't want to be listening to things that are so scary and intense and it just feels hopeful. It feels like there are you know, there's good hearted people in charge and it's not a political statement, but wherever you are, it just feels like, do we have the right people in charge? Are we being led by people that are really being th- thinking about the right things and that aren't playing politics and that aren't caring about optics? And, um, the, the West Wing is about this, this group of the senior staff and this president who you just always believe 
they really are trying to do the right thing. And they're really good guys, like fighting for the people. And I cannot believe how well it holds up. It's a little bit hilarious, the things that you find, like the phones or the the TVs or the computers that feel so dated. But it also is really interesting how well it holds up and how often something happens that Jeremy and I are like, man, this feels really powerful and poignant for what is happening today. So um, I will plug West Wing any day of the week. But I just got to tell you that um, President Bartlett and his crew are really bringing Jeremy and I a lot of joy. (laughs) So I really want to remind you, to swipe up and pop your email in on the simple website that I have created to make sure that you are the first to hear about this brand new offering that I have coming out. So keep an eye on your inboxes and your sneaky spam folder for that. And if you feel that today's episode is the kind of joyful, inspiring content that people are seeking these days that, you know, doesn't address COVID and it's not talking about all the heaviness in the news, but it also doesn't ignore its presence in our thoughts either. And the fact that it has us really thinking about uh, maybe deep and heartfelt and futuristic and joyful things in our life. I would be so honored if you would take a screenshot and share this on Instagram today. I know that people are, I particularly am really looking for what's the kind of podcast that I want to be listening to right now? And there's just different times when I'm seeking something different. And there's so many different episodes here, whether they are deep in terms of, you know, how we overcome anxiety or they are lighter about travel or they are more helpful on business and dreaming. I would just be so honored if you would pop over to your Instagram stories or what other Facebook groups you are a part of screenshot and share this. Tag me if you share it on Instagram stories and uh, let's share this beautiful community and invite more of our friends here. So I will see you back here next Wednesday and until then over on Instagram and Instagram stories with grace and gumption. Till next Wednesday.